welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today's episode is really touching on a hot topic in the news. So recently, the New York Times did an article about menopausal weight gain and the use of Ozempic. And Ozempic has been in the news a lot lately, obviously, as a weight loss option for women. And in the article, they quoted Dr. Maria Daniela Hurtado as an expert in weight loss management for menopausal women. And Dr. Hurtado happens to be our guest on today's episode, and we're thrilled to have her. Dr. Hurtado is a physician and scientist, and she's part of the Mayo Clinic's Precision Medicine for Obesity program. And she really answered our questions about weight management, why we gain weight, about getting into cognitive behavioral therapy, lifestyle changes, and for those women who do qualify the use of Ozempic, Wagovi, and a new FDA-approved medication. So she answered the questions that a lot of women have. You know, all this information is being inundated to us by media and take this, take that. But what are the long-term side effects? Does it affect your muscle mass, which is something that they're starting to show? You know, these medications have been used for diabetes and other illnesses. Now with weight loss, we don't have the long-term research to show what kind of side effects they have. They are taking away muscle mass as opposed to fat. And others are talking about gastroparesis and stomach um, issues. But all of that is so new that Dr. Hurtado really breaks it down as to what you should talk to your particular doctor about. Because again, we are not doctors. We just want you to have the information so you can talk to your doctor about your personal goals and history. Right, Bridget? That's right. I mean, it. she had such really eye-opening and uh, information in there. You know, be sure to listen uh, to the fact that what your BMI is, your body mass index is, it's lower than I thought for certain procedures and certain medications that you could take. So make sure you pay close attention to that. I do want to remind everybody, um, I don't know about you, but I use an Apple iPhone and they recently updated and a whole lot of little weird things are happening on there. <laughs> um, yeah, little weird things. Um, but one thing I did notice, I was listening to some of my favorite podcasts and typically, when I'm listening to my favorite podcast, especially when I'm driving and I don't want to touch my phone, if I have it on the show and I missed an episode that was previously on, it will go to that episode, the next episode. Well, it wasn't doing that. So I didn't understand what was happening. I found out with this update that it will do the one episode you want to listen to, but it won't download the other ones that you may have missed. And you know, I can't listen. Sometimes, you know, I'm busy. We're doing recordings. We're doing things for the podcast. We're doing other things. And I don't get to listen the day they come out. So just make sure you're checking. If you've downloaded our episode or you're downloading this episode, make sure you check our other episodes in case there's one that you missed that you would really want to listen to because we've had some fabulous guests on, as we always do. You know, I dread doing updates on my phones, but if you don't, then eventually your phone stops working. Yeah, so it's you like, got to do them. You got to do them. We're going to start this conversation with Dr. Hurtado, and we're going to talk about the skinny on weight management in midlife. We'll talk to you after. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, we have on Dr. Maria Daniela Hurtado, who is a doctor at the Mayo Clinic and recently presented her research 
at the Menopause Society annual meeting on the topic of the skinny on weight management in midlife. And oh, what a topic that is for our listeners. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hurtado. Thank you so much for having me and really happy to have this conversation. You do a lot of work with obesity. You're an endocrinologist. What do you find as far as midlife goes that women find the hardest issue about weight management? I think, yes, losing it is a big part of um, the concern when patients come to see me. But then, but then the other part is not understanding why they gained weight or why their body changed. What I see is that many of these women come to me saying, I didn't do anything. I didn't change how I ate. I didn't change how much I exercised. And I just don't know how this weight came on me. I just started gaining weight no matter what I did to prevent it. I couldn't do anything. So the why, I guess, is one of the most challenging questions um, that I have in clinical practice and that when I explain to them, everything makes sense. Why is this happening? I'm not really eating differently. I'm actually eating less. I'm actually, I feel like I'm exercising more. So what are some answers that you can give them? I always try putting things into perspective. The reality is that as we age, even in early adulthood, we do experience some weight gain. The weight gain is not very significant. On average, women gain, uh, gain weight between one to two pounds a year. But then in midlife, we see these important, not only physical, but also social and psychological changes that make it more likely to realize it and also may precipitate this weight gain or may um, make it faster, more pronounced. So what happens in midlife is that two different processes occur, aging and menopause. So when it comes to aging, I already said it. As we age, we gain weight. That's just part of aging because there is significant changes in our body. For example, as we age, we lose muscle mass. And if we lose muscle mass, our metabolism goes down. And if our metabolism goes down and we do not change our dietary habits, we are prone to gain weight. And then menopause hits. And menopause hits and it has several effects in our body. First, it also contributes uh, to changing muscle quality and quantity. So it will lead to a little bit more lean muscle um, or muscle muscle loss. And in addition to that, will cause a redistribution of fat. So once we lose estrogen, we start accumulating fat in the abdomen and we start losing the fat in the hips. So when our body composition changes or the fat distribution in our body changes, that's when we become more aware of it. Most women are really worried or concerned about the accumulation of fat in the abdomen. They come to the clinical practice and they say, this is new. I didn't have this, pointing towards their belly. So the combination of both, gain weight, but also redistribution of fat is what makes women more aware of what is happening. And then as all these happen, happens at the same time, we need to be aware that in order to prevent these, we truly need to start making changes before it happens. So the clue is preventing these from happening. And that's what most people are not aware of. Even from the health 
practice providers, right? Um, they do not recommend women to start watching their weight when they are in their late 30s or 40s. Um, all of a sudden, a woman come to us and they complain, and that's when we act, which for many women is late. Right. It's so much harder to lose it than to prevent it from happening. And, you know, I think it is getting better with uh, just people talking more about menopause that hopefully we can get this younger generation to become aware of it. So what are some steps to help those people that are getting ready to enter peri, um, perimenopause to work on prevention? First of all, we need to be aware of these changes. So when women are in their late 30s, we should start having the conversation about what changes their bodies are going to undergo over the next couple of decades. So the conversation truly needs to begin in the late 30s. And then in the 40s, we should start implementing some strategies to prevent weight gain and changes in body composition. For instance, we know based on some studies that in order to prevent weight gain before menopause, we really need to decrease uh, the amount of calories that we consume. Some studies suggesting that around 1,300 calories per day in order to prevent weight gain before menopause hits. And then there are other studies suggesting that after menopause, caloric restriction may not be that important, but the quality of the the diet may be more predictive of maintaining weight. Um, The other important thing is making sure that patients are aware that as we age, and especially as we go through menopause, we are very likely to exercise, right? Uh, We were busy. We have other... um, other um, activities that we need to attend, the kids, work. So there is this midlife stage is very complicated from the social aspect. So we tend to be less active. And as we age, that continues to get worse. So putting emphasis on the fact that this will happen and finding strategies to prevent that not happening. Again, when patients come to my practice, I always ask, what do you think were the factors for the weight gain? And besides menopause in women, the other big one is changes in activity. I used to be very active and then life happened, kids, job, partners, and then that's it. The weight started coming up. So making people aware, women aware of that may allow them to think of a strategies to prevent decreasing their level of activity. Um, so those are the two major aspects, right? Making sure that we make dietary changes, make sure we complement that with physical activity. And then the other very important thing is truly educating women, especially as they go through this menopausal transition, about the fact that menopause can lead to significant symptoms. I'm talking about the vasomotor symptoms, the poor sleep, that can affect their weight loss journey. And we are so... Um, you know, from the societal perspective, women feel that it's normal. Hot flashes are normal and there is nothing that needs to be done about it, right? We have pretty much um, normalized it. But the reality is that we shouldn't normalize it and women should know that there are strategies to prevent them from having these bothersome symptoms that may affect their weight or their weight loss journey. Just a few days ago in my clinic, I saw a woman, she's 60 years old, and she's having terrible hot flashes. And of course, she told me I went through menopause years ago, but I'm still having hot flashes and I'm hoping that they will improve at some point. And to me, the conversation really evolved about the fact that it's very important that we take that into consideration because she's having hot flashes. She barely, she barely wants to go to exercise because she's afraid that she's going to have a hot flash in the middle of her exercise session uh, with her 
her friends. She doesn't sleep well. She doesn't sleep well because she's, she's having night sweats, hot flashes. Then she wakes up and she's very tired. She's very tired. And the first thing that she looks for is rewarding herself with food. So if we don't break that cycle, it's very difficult to get our patients to their goals in terms of weight and health. One of the things that you talk about too is the fact that lifestyle modifications to have weight loss can sometimes follow by weight gain back again. Can you talk about that? Sure. It is well established that when we start changing our eating behaviors, exercise behaviors, especially as we start losing weight, your body will find ways of preventing you to lose more weight and hopefully even having you regain that weight. is what we call the weight set point. Pretty much your body feeling that at the highest weight that you have had, that's what you need to be to function properly. And in order to stay there, your body's going to have you consume as many calories as needed to keep you there. So I don't know if um, probably many people feel... Um, feel the same way, but we start dieting. Maybe we do well the first two days, but then the third day we are starving. We are having more cravings. Those are responses that our brain puts into place to make sure that we continue to consume the same amount of calories to keep our weight at where it was. So the reality is that Many people will be able to lose weight by changing their diet, exercising more. Studies have been done, and on average, people can lose, can lose between 3 and 5% of their body weight if they um, change their lifestyle. However, studies have also shown that it's very hard to keep the weight off. Eventually, the majority of people will regain the weight back. So the question is, how do we avoid those um, metabolic and behavioral adaptations that occur as we are trying to lose weight on our own? And that's when we talk about tools, tools that will actually help your body feel more comfortable restricting your calories in order to lose weight. And that's when medications, endoscopic bariatric procedures, and bariatric surgery come in place. What, how do the type of foods, where does that come into play with most of your patients? That's, um, that's a very important part of our lifestyle changes, right? Foods have different densities. And depending on the density of the food, you may trigger stronger signals to feel satisfied or satiated. For instance, we know that fat and protein tend to be more satiating than simple carbohydrates. Why is that? Because receptors for fat and protein can... Um, stimulate the release of satiating hormones. There are several substances or hormones in our body that are secreted by the gut or the intestines that, we, that will send a signal to the brain saying, hey, you are full, right? This is what we call the satiety hormones. We also know that, for example, fevers, uh, foods that are um, what I call volumetric, meaning that occupy um, more volume but have less calories can also be can also feel feel more satisfying. And why is that? Because when you have this food getting into the stomach and occupying a space, but not being you know too high in calorie content, they are still going to distend the stomach. And that distension of the stomach is also going to send a signal to your brain saying, "Hey, your stomach is distended. Probably you're getting full satisfied. We need to stop eating." And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. 
And we're back. All those signals are very, very important. And when people start making these changes in terms of the choices of food, um, foods that are rich in fiber, they start noticing the impact on that fullness and satisfaction sensation. That's so important. And a lot of people, it's just a habit to to eat even when they know they're full. Is there anything to help? Because that's a big thing. Like just eating something because it's there. Any tips on that? Mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the hardest things to change. Um, My tips are the following. Making sure that we are eating and just eating. Try to take time to eat. Try to take time to enjoy your food. Chew. Chew, chew, chew. If we do not chew our food, we are more likely to eat more. Why? Because chewing takes time. So we chew, we are taking our time, then the food goes into the stomach. And truly, once the, st- once the food gets to the stomach and distends the stomach, it takes around 20 to 30 minutes to relay the full signal to the brain saying that satisfaction levels are high. So if we tend to eat in less than 20 minutes, we are likely that person that tends to overeat because you're not giving enough time to the signal to go to the brain and tell you to stop. So uh, I have done that. I eat very quick. I overeat. And after 30 minutes, instead of feel, feeling happily satisfied, I feel like I'm going to explode, right? Oh my God, I overate. So we really want to avoid that. So mindfulness, making sure that you're eating and just eating, making sure that you're not eating while um, working or watching TV or doing any other activities, making sure that um, you are aware of your portions, right? Um, so be aware of your portions. Try to serve yourself uh, to serve yourself in a smaller plates, but feel fuller because even that visual stimulus is important. When you see a plate that is full, your brain kind of starts processing that information. Oh, that is a lot of food. Whereas it may not be that much, but it's just a small plate that is full. Um. Flavor is very important. Um, There is some uh, data suggesting that flavorful food may be more satisfying than bland food. Uh, So using spices could be um, a good uh, technique just to improve all these signals that come into play when we are eating and sending those uh, satiation and satisfaction sensations to the brain. I also recommend not drinking water maybe 30 minutes before, during, and after the meal. My husband makes fun of me and he pretty much tells me that I'm asking him to choke himself. (laughs) And the reality is that, you know, if we are not drinking fluids, we're more likely to chew the food. So that will take more time for you to chew the food and then swallow it. So it does help with these behavioral changes that eventually may help you establish good eating behaviors. Making sure that choosing the right type of foods, um, What about timing? Because a lot of people do intermittent fasting. There is a lot of, there is a lot of back and forward in terms of what is better, right? The reality is that intermittent fasting could have positive metabolic effects. That said, when it comes to weight maintenance or weight loss, I tell my patients that what really matters is the amount of calories that we consume. Because you could be doing intermittent fasting, meaning, you know, eating eating from noon until 6 p.m. But if during those times you are eating an excessive amount of calories, it's not going to help with your efforts. 
So in addition to following certain schedules, I have many of my patients really like intermittent fasting. I just ask them to keep an eye on the calories. I have had patients who tell me I'm doing intermittent fasting and it's not working. And when I inquire more about what is happening, what ends up happening is that they break the fast at noon and they are so hungry that they tend to overeat. Not only they tend to overeat in terms of the amount, but also tend to find foods that are more rewarding. Because if you are hungry, you just want to feel good, right? You want to take away that sensation and we're more likely to have food choices that are not necessarily ideal. So meal planning is another very good strategy. So knowing what you're going to eat, maybe already preparing your portions, um, avoiding eating out, eating out whether we like it or not, even if we choose the healthiest choice on the menu, it's going to have excessive calories. So all those things we need to take into consideration to succeed, especially if we are not using any other tools like medications, endoscopic procedures, bariatric surgery, and we're trying to do this just from the lifestyle um, perspective. You know, let's talk about medications. There, another one was just approved today for weight loss from the FDA. What is your number one opinion on the medications for women in menopause? And also, we've been hearing some things about negative, you know, kind of blockages in the intestine, side effects. Can you talk about that? That's a very good question. Um, I think we are finally starting to treat obesity as it is a disease. And I like the analogy of taking any other disease, for example, diabetes. If you have a patient with diabetes and they come to your practice seeking treatment for diabetes, you give them options, right? You tell them, here are the possible medications that we can use for you. It, is, it should be the same for obesity. And for a long time, we didn't do that. And we were just telling patients eat less and exercise more. As Evidence suggests it's very hard to lose weight just with diet and an exercise because obesity is not a character flaw. It actually has a biological basis. We have been able to develop these medications that target these biological bases. And as a result, do help our patients not only lose weight, but also keep it off. There are several medications that have been approved for weight loss. All these medications vary in terms of how they are given, the side effect profile, the cost, their effectiveness. Um, a lot of these medications are gaining a lot of media attention because they are becoming more and more effective. Uh, a couple of years ago, semaglutide was approved for the treatment of overweight and obesity. And in the field, we were very excited because for the first time, we could reach an average weight loss of 15%. With prior medications, the maximum weight loss that we could achieve was 10%. With most medications, giving you an average weight loss between 5 and 8%, 5 and 7%. So 15% for us was a very huge deal, and we were very excited. And on top of that, with semaglutide, the studies, the pivotal studies, demonstrated that one every three people could lose more than 20% of their body weight, which is the amount of body weight that we start seeing with bariatric surgery. It was a breakthrough. These medications are very good. They truly help, help our patients achieve their goals. Um, like any other medication, they can potentially have side effects. And it's something that should be discussed with your patients. You always have to discuss what are the risks, what are the benefits, and give the information to your patients so they can make an informed decision. We have heard a lot of bad things about these medications. When they gain so much media attention, of course, you are more likely to hear the bad things that could happen. We know how these medications act on your body, the effect they have on your body. We know that they can alter how 
the muscles here in our intestines work. So it can slow gastric and intestinal motility. As a result, it can cause constipation. Um, Theoretically, there is a risk of gut paralysis, but this has been reported in a handful of cases. So this is not common. Yes, it could happen, but you need to discuss about what things you need to do in order to prevent things getting to the point that your gut is paralyzed and you're having the consequences of that. And that's why these medications need to be prescribed under medical supervision, because you need to be there to support your patient through anything they are going, especially the side effects. Do you have to commit to taking them for your lifetime? Excellent question. And going back to the diabetes analogy or the high blood pressure analogy, right? You have a patient with diabetes, with high blood pressure, you put them on medications. What happens if you stop the medication? Their sugars start going up, their blood pressure starts going up. So truly, when we start these medications for any chronic disease, including obesity, we should start them with the understanding that if you stop them, you're going to go back to square one. And the reality is that you will likely have to take them long term. Um, for semaglutide, there is a study demonstrating that patients were given the medication for 20 weeks. They lost weight. After 20 weeks, half of the patients received placebo and the other half continued the medications. And those who received placebo regained the weight back. Not everyone, but the great majority did regain the weight back. Just showing you again that these medications are truly targeting the biological basis of this disease. They are effective. They are doing their job. And then, um, you know, since you mentioned that the FDA approved terzepatide just today, um, we are, again, thrilled because terzepatide seems to be even more effective than semaglutide. As I was telling you, for the pivotal studies uh, using semaglutide, the average weight loss was 15%. For terzepatide, is 22%. So again, bariatric surgery type of weight loss. Um, we know that one every three patients are able to achieve more than 25% body weight loss. And one every um, three patients are... Um, I'm sorry, one every two patients are able to achieve more than 20% body weight loss. So 50% of patients are truly uh, able to achieve um, a significant amount of weight loss, a more than significant amount of weight loss. Again, 10% is good. 15% is better. 20, 25 is awesome. Wow. And, and so what about, you know, there's people that really need it, people who are obese that really need it. What about people who maybe aren't really obese? You know, what about... Uh, the shortages and the risks of that, of, of running out of the medication? It is a complex topic. There are clear indications for the use of this medication. Any person with a BMI greater than 30, which is the threshold for the obesity classification, is a candidate for these medications. Also, anyone with a, with a BMI between 27 and 30, so that is not obesity classification, that is classified as overweight, uh, as long as they have one weight or a deposit-related disease, and that includes diabetes, prediabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, joint pain, obstructive sleep apnea, um, fat accumulation in the liver. So those patients also meet the criteria to use these medications. So the question is, you know, should I give it to the person who um, has a BMI of 50 or should I give it to a person with a BMI of 27? And the reality is that both people are living with a disease. And 
even if a patient has a weight loss goal of 30% of their weight versus 10% of their weight, it comes to really you discussing with your patients what are the expectations, what their goals are, and what to expect. And it's a long conversation. Just to put things into perspective, when patients come to see me, one of the first questions that I ask is what their goal is. And many people will give you a number, right? I want to lose 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds, like 10% of my body weight, 50% of my body weight. And that is really important to me because that will guide me in terms of uh, discussing options that will meet their expectations. And then I always go a little bit of a step ahead and ask them, besides that number, what else? Because I want to know what their goal is. I have some patients that tell me, I just want to get rid of my diabetes medication. I want to be able to walk better. I want to be able to breathe better. So you may be wanting to lose 50 pounds, but the reality is that to improve your diabetes, you may be able to lose just 10, 15, maybe 20 pounds, and you will be able to get rid of your diabetes medication. So having those two ideas in mind will help you discuss the options with patients. And if someone comes and tells me, I am 10 pounds uh, above my ideal weight, I already have joint pain and I want to get it better, the question is, should I use these newer medications that promote much more weight loss or should I consider one of the older generation medications that can give you a 10% body weight loss and will get you to where you want to get? Again, shared decision-making is very, very important. Talking about expectations, talking about goals, it's a long conversation and that's what you base your decision on. So when you tell me if you have that person that has 10 extra pounds, um, is it fair for them to use these medications? And... I cannot say, no, it is not fair because there may be reasons as why these people are requesting that you help them through their weight loss journey. Um, of course, you will have people with a BMI in the normal range category that gained 10 pounds over the holidays and they want to lose those 10 pounds. Again, those people, technically, they do not have an indication because their BMI is in the normal weight category. But we do know that some of these people may be getting the medication because they are requesting their providers, their friends, uh, going to compounded pharmacies. It's a discussion that needs to be done with the patient, uh, medical personnel, whether it is a physician, an advanced um, practice um, professional, a nurse, uh, a health coach. It's a very important conversation to have to make sure that you meet patients' expectations. Another question I have is on the topic of exercise, because for at least our demographic, many of us are not exercising to lose the extra few pounds, but are actually exercising to stay healthy, to keep our heart health, to keep our body, you know, we do strength training to keep our, our muscle mass. Can you talk about the importance of exercise and how that plays a role? Exercise. The benefits of exercise have been very well described in the literature, for overall health, not only physical health, mental health, truly exercise is very, very advantageous for a person. When it comes to weight management, 
The couple of things that I share with my patients is that losing weight just by exercising is really hard. So when people come to me and tell me, I, instead of going to the gym three times, I'm doing it five times, I tell them it is still very hard. You will need to exercise several hours a day to be able to burn enough calories to create a caloric deficit to lose weight. Um, I do encourage them to continue to do what they are doing. The goal of physical activity as we age is not only making sure that we continue to be fit, but we need to avoid other things that happen as we age, particularly when it comes to muscle mass loss. Losing muscle as we age is again a natural part of aging, and we need to minimize that as much as possible because too little amount of muscle later in life is a predictor for bad health outcomes including having heart attacks or any type of cardiovascular disease. So in midlife, we should not only focus on cardiovascular activity, but resistance training is important to make sure that we continue to at least keep our muscle mass, um, preventing from uh, going down and maybe even build some muscle mass. Timing, I don't know if you had any questions about timing, the oh, general recommendations, yeah, the general recommendations when it comes to um, timing uh, of exercise, at least 150 minutes of exercise every week, and it should be moderate intensity, meaning being able to speak in full sentences, but if you try to sing a song, you wouldn't be able because you feel short of breath. Um, for weight maintenance after a weight loss intervention, more is required, generally between 200 and 300 minutes of exercise every week of moderate intensity. But if you're trying to do exercise just to keep yourself healthy, 150 minutes should be the goal. When you say 150 minutes, is that a combination of cardio and strength training or yep. do you have to have more of one or the other? It's a combination of cardio and strength training. We need to take into consideration that when you lose weight, you also lose muscle mass. Even if you try doing it in the healthiest way, it's just the changes that occur as we lose weight. And that's why after a weight loss intervention, we need much more exercise to keep the weight off. Okay. Plus that does slow your metabolism down as well. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. The muscle mass is pretty much what drives um, the slowing of the metabolism. And that's why in order to keep up with that, you need to do more exercise. Yes. Sorry, that just seems unfair. <laughs> <laughs> what about body composition? I know with women, especially you were saying it goes to our bellies a lot of time. And when we lose the muscle, where are we losing most of that muscle? It's a diffuse muscle mass. So you're more likely to see muscle mass loss in the larger muscle groups. So some people will notice that their legs are feeling skinnier or their arms are feeling skinnier, mostly from the muscle mass uh, loss. Uh, That's the regular complaint that you would hear in clinical practice. And that seems so important too, especially your legs just for balance. And, you know, then you want to prevent falls and everything else and breaking hips and so you also talk about surgeries. When when is it when is someone a candidate for surgery for bariatric surgery? Bariatric surgery. Um just as medications we have defined criteria in terms of who should be a candidate for bariatric surgery. What is really interesting is that the guidelines recently changed a year ago. So we are moving towards being more aggressive in 
recommending bariatric surgery. And why is this? Because we know that bariatric surgery is a life-saving procedure. Let's not forget that bariatric surgery continues to be the most effective treatment for the management of overweight and obesity, not only in terms of the amount of weight loss, but also the amount of weight loss maintenance. We have these new amazing medications that are leading to weight losses similar to what we see with bariatric surgery, but let's not forget that we don't have long-term data. So truly, we don't know what happens 5, 10, 15 years down the road, whereas we do have that data for bariatric surgery. So with that being said, bariatric surgery is currently recommended for anyone with a BMI greater than 35. For anyone with a BMI between 30 and 35 who also have a weight-related disease, And from insurance purposes, the ones that are truly taken into consideration to see if it is approved or not include hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, obstructive sleep apnea, history of heart disease, uh, for example, heart attacks, strokes. Um, So those are truly the comorbidities or additional health conditions that are um, used to consider approval or not. What is very interesting as well is that we are considering bariatric surgery in people with BMIs between 27 and 30. For example, people who have diabetes that has been very difficult to control. Um, It is a population that we could consider offering bariatric surgery just because the benefits of making the diabetes get better, maybe possibly in remission, outweigh the the risks of having a surgery. So as you can see, because of the effects of bariatric surgery on overall health and even mortality, it reduces mortality, overall mortality and cardiovascular mortality, it's a fantastic tool that is unfortunately underutilized um, and that we should consider in appropriate patients. The risks involved with bariatric surgery. Of course, it is a surgery. So there are the risks... um, related to having a patient being under anesthesia and then being in bed after surgery. It doesn't carry any additional risk that, for example, have a gallbladder removed. We think it's even less riskier than having a gallbladder removed, less riskier than having an appendix removed. So when we offer this option to our patients, we need to make sure that their health is optimal before the procedure. And we make sure that is the case to minimize all possible risks. After bariatric surgery, the most common type of complications are actually related to the surgical insertion sites, difficulty healing, hernias, infections that are actually pretty easy to manage. Rare complications or serious complications are extremely rare. Um, Because of the dietary changes that occur after bariatric surgery and because some of bariatric surgeries will lead to decreased absorption of nutrients, we do worry about the possibilities of mineral, vitamin deficiencies or malnutrition. Close follow-up, making sure that you visit your bariatric team is very, very important because during follow-up, we monitor for all these things. My my last question is, this has been so informative and Bridget and I have learned so much. How can women find doctors like you in their areas? Like, where do they look to to find specialists? There are a few um, societies. For example, the Obesity Medicine Society does have a roster of physicians across the states and they could uh, find providers um, for obesity medicine. I always suggest patients to reach out to their primary providers. 
a lot of primary providers are becoming more and more interested in helping patients treat their disease. And I think it's related to the fact that we also have more effective therapies. Before, we didn't have a lot of options. We didn't know how to deal with it or how to treat it effectively. But more and more people are becoming interested and are learning how to treat this disease. So starting with a primary care provider is always a good option. And if they feel they are not getting what they were expecting, vouching for themselves do you know of someone who can help me with this? And they may be able to have someone within the same group or maybe the same medical system where they can be referred to. But otherwise, the Obesity Medicine Association has a roster of clinicians that could um, help and that can be found by zip code or a state or city. Thank you so much for coming on. This information is really going to help a lot of people who are listening. And we will have your link and everything in the show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I really hope that people feel more encouraged to talk about this because that's the other thing. We have been stigmatized for such a long time that we don't want to bring these up to the table when we are with our primary uh, providers. Um, Other people feel that their own medical teams have stigmatized them. And that creates a whole bunch of other issues like women or men or anyone not getting medical the medical care they they need because they are going to feel stigmatized. So having the conversation, understanding there are resources is very, very important. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hurtado. This information was really invaluable. I know so many of our listeners have questions about that. That is a really hot topic when we hit midlife and something that just kind of just takes us by surprise. And we would really like to inform those women that are in PERI or getting ready to enter PERI, what to expect, why it's happening. And the fact that she talks about early counseling. Yes. Like before it gets Prevention. too far to start early counseling and a, a comprehensive lifestyle changes because we don't know. You know, right. we're doing what we've been doing our whole lives and all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore. Ladies, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Remember, you can follow us on all forms of social media. And if you're so inclined and you enjoyed this episode, we would so appreciate you going on and leaving us a rate, a great review and a five-star rating. Because the more reviews we get, the more we go out to more women and the more women we can help with information and education and a little bit of entertainment along the way. Have a great week. We hope you're enjoying your holiday season and we will talk to you next time. Bye.